because of its gold, but Roman occupants ruled the city, not the Philippians. And Philippi had this bad habit, too, of, of siding with the losing armies in these major battles. So, yeah, they knew about societal turbulence. They had a long history of it. That might be why Paul has to remind them in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, do everything without grumbling or arguing that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Do you see a warped and crooked generation around? Lots of societal turbulence. Now, where's the joy in persevering through that? Maybe your struggle is personal injustice. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe you're being slandered by someone. Maybe you've been wronged. Maybe you're trying to do the best that you can in a situation, but you're still attacked and you're abused and you're not valued. Paul knows about that too. You remember how he got in jail in Rome in the first place, right? In the latter chapters of the book of Acts, we see Paul taking a gift to the poor in Jerusalem. But when he gets to Jerusalem, he gets arrested and attacked and he gets tried and he gets jailed unjustly. He appeals to Caesar. He gets hauled off to Rome and then he waits and he waits and he waits just stuck. He didn't do anything wrong, but here he is chained to a Roman soldier. Paul knows about personal injustice. Now, where's the joy in persevering through that? And maybe for you, the struggle is congregational staleness. I was talking with my elders a couple weeks ago about this sermon, just picking their brains a little bit. And one of them said to me, he said, you know, it's hard to persevere when you don't see the numbers. You see good people coming in the door, but it's hard to stay in the fray when it feels like things at church are stuck in a rut. And maybe that's you. I got to spend some time in Africa after my freshman year here at Ozark with some good missionary friends. And they're alone. They're working there alone. They've been there for years, living in poverty and hardship, and they haven't seen a single convert, but they're still there. Where's the joy in persevering through that? Paul felt this congregational staleness too. I mean, yeah, in Philippians, Paul's proud in this letter. But if you've read through things like Galatians and 1 Corinthians, you know that he could be awfully disappointed in the church. Now, where's the joy in persevering through that? But maybe, maybe for you, the struggle is bodily weakness. Maybe that's what it is. I was talking with a couple of the other elders at church, and they were talking with me about this. They said, you know, everybody looks younger and younger these days. I'm in my dad's shoes now. I've got no kids at home. What do I have to wake up for? One of them said, I'm just a walking (laughs) band-aid. Then he said, my teeth are like stars. They come out at night. (laughs) At that point, one of the other elders piped in and he said, yeah, and your doctor's younger than you. That's a reality check. Maybe your health is your struggle. Paul knows about that too. I mean, he's been flogged five times when even once kills some people. He's been beaten with rods three times, stoned once, shipwrecked three times. He's been spent a day and a night on an open sea. He's got a thorn in his flesh that God just won't take away no matter how many times he pleads with him. And he's been in constant danger of whoever it is that wants to kill him right then. And it's always somebody. And Paul calls these things light and momentary troubles. But... It's clear that he still wants to get out of this worn old body. He says in Philippians chapter 1 verse 23, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But he's here. And his body's probably hurting. Where's the joy in persevering through that? But maybe, maybe for you the struggle is situational helplessness. I was talking with the elders about this too, about persevering when your house is really quiet. When the holidays are coming and the songs and the laughter aren't in your living room anymore. And your sense of worth is challenged over and over again because they take away the things that you think that you can still do. Or maybe everyone finally is gathered together in one room. You finally got them all together and maybe you can't hear the conversation. 
can't imagine how hard that would be. Maybe, maybe you want to remember things. You want to be able to keep track of it all, but, but you just can't anymore. <laughs> you ever feel helpless? One of my elders said to me, old age ain't for sissies. <laughs> Maybe you feel helpless financially. Maybe that's what it is. I mean, Paul probably experienced that. You know Paul. He's so proud to be able to take care of himself. He provided for himself by making tents with his own two calloused hands. He took great joy in that. But now, now he can't do that. Now he has to have people come and take care of him. And maybe you feel things like that. Looking back on the glory days, wondering what you can do now. Wondering what your purpose is now. Maybe you hear those lies in your head. I don't know. Maybe you hear the lies, I'm not good to anyone, what's my value? I bet Paul struggled with those things. I mean, Paul, Paul was the greatest Christian missionary and theologian of all time. He was brilliant. He traveled over 10,000 miles, much of it on foot around the entire known world, planting churches, speaking, debating, raising funds, distributing aid, mentoring, training leaders. And if you read through Philippians, when Paul speaks confidently of Jesus delivering him and hoping that he'll be able to come visit this Philippian church. You can tell that Paul wants out. He doesn't want to be a prisoner. But he's stuck writing letters to his friends far away. And I bet sometimes there wasn't much to do besides just sit and think. If that was me, it would be awfully tempting for me to grow complacent or even despondent. He can't do what he used to anymore. Now, where's the joy in persevering through that? Well, that's a tough question. But hard times alone don't produce perseverance or joy. Suffering by itself doesn't mean that you're going to learn how to persevere. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to be joyful. So if we are going to learn how to persevere, and if we're going to learn how to experience joy doing it, even in hard times, it's probably important that we know what those two words mean. So let's start with perseverance. What is perseverance anyway? If you would, look with me at chapter 1, verse 27 in Philippians. Follow along. Paul says this. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Did you hear those words, striving together? Uh, striving together, it's, it's literally the Greek word sunathleo. That's the word, if we're going to let me be a nerd here for a second. Sunathleo, and there's two parts of that word. The first part, soon, and the last part, athleto. Athleto. The first part, soon, means together. It's where we get our word synthesis, or, synth- or, or, or synonym, excuse me. And the last word is athleto. You can hear it in the word. It's where we get our word athlete. So soon athleto, striving together, it means be an athlete together. When you hear this word, striving together, I want you to see a team of people pulling at the oars together or a basketball team passing the ball seamlessly up and down the court or an offensive line leaping up together to block for the running back. They're all working together towards a common goal. I think that's a good picture of perseverance. And and you know the word perseverance, it has two parts too, right? Per is the first part of the word and it means through. And what's the last part? Severe. So we're literally supposed to go through that which is severe. So I think we're going to define perseverance today like this. Perseverance is a relentless advance in the face of adversity. A relentless advance in the face of adversity. No pain, no gain. We've heard it said like that before. I'm a, I'm a sports fan, and, and, and the NFL's all-time rushing leader, the running back to run for more yards than anyone else in history, is Emmett Smith. He's the great Dallas Cowboy. And over his career, Emmett Smith ran for 18,355 yards. That's ten and a half miles. It's pretty amazing. But the more amazing part is that he did it 4.2 yards at a time. 
He only averaged 4.2 yards per carry. That's an awful lot of getting knocked down and getting back up again, wouldn't you say? This guy, one of the greatest football players in history, was tackled every 4.2 yards. Can you imagine if after one of those short little four-yard carries, he would have just gotten so discouraged at being tackled that he just didn't get back up? No. But that's perseverance, a relentless advance in the face of adversity. So what's joy? What's joy? Joy is not the same as happiness. I think we know that. Happiness comes and goes. Happiness is a situational thing. But we can have joy regardless of the situation that we're in. In fact, one theologian defines joy as a defiant nevertheless. The sky may fall, but nevertheless. I like that. I think that's a pretty good definition. But but as Christians, we don't just rely on blind optimism. We're not just looking at the cloud and trying to find some kind of silver lining. No, we actually find the sovereign lining. So we're going to look for the sovereign lining. We ask the question, where is God active in this situation? How is God's sovereignty being displayed right now? And so our joy is, as you see it there, a satisfaction in the sovereign lining. Even when the situation stinks. And Paul knows about this. I mean, the guy's a jailbird. He's got a long rap sheet and a bruised body to prove it. Repeat offender. But what did he do when him and Silas got stuck in jail? They sang. They were the first ones to do the jailhouse rock. Elvis got it from the apostles there. Their singing must have been pretty bad, though, because the jailer wanted to kill himself afterwards. I mean, that's, that situation stunk. That was no fun. But Paul looked up at the sovereign lining and he chose joy over bitterness or despair or sorrow. And we must do the same thing. You see, when we hurt, when we experience pain, it naturally turns our thoughts inward. We, we focus on ourselves and our hurt and our pain and everything that we're going through. And we become consumed by our pain, isolating ourselves. But God, God has lifted our heads up. And when God lifts your head up, you can't look at yourself anymore. When God lifts your head up, you can peel your eyes off of your own pain and you can find joy in gazing at him, fixing your eyes on Jesus, Colossians 3, dwelling in the sovereign lining of our situation. So if you want to have joy, you have to do that. Joy is satisfaction in the sovereign lining. It requires keeping your head up to see the sovereign lining instead of just looking at yourself. I mean, here in Philippians, uh, Paul's not asking us to feel sorry for him. He's not whining about how much his situation stinks. He's got his eyes up on Jesus, focusing on others, focusing on the health of the church, the sovereign lining of the situation. So let's put the pieces together now. We know that we all go through suffering and hard times, and sometimes it's hard to find the joy in persevering through that. We know what perseverance is. It's a relentless advance in the face of adversity, and we know what joy is. It's a satisfaction in the sovereign lining. So what is the joy of perseverance? Well, perhaps the joy of perseverance is... The cultivation of character. Billy Graham says, mountaintops are for views and inspiration, but fruit is grown in the valleys. It's pretty good. (laughs) But sometimes walking in those valleys feels like torture. And when we do persevere, a relentless advance in the face of adversity, even through those valleys, we will be matured, we will be assured, we will be strengthened, we will be shaped, and we will be settled. I mean, think about it. When have you grown the most? When have you become the closest to God? It's in hardship, right? Hardship is a very key element of the discipleship process, but it's not one that we like to talk about very often. (laughs) If you are going to follow this Jesus guy, you're going to go through the ringer. And it's going to be really good for you. 
growing up, my dad, the preacher, he had all these cheesy motivational phrases that he'd like to use on us when we needed a pep talk. So we'd be out on the driveway, he'd be trying to teach us how to ride a bike or something, and I'd have scraped up elbows and bloodied up knees, and I just wanted to go inside and be done with it. But he'd say, son, when a cowboy falls off his horse, he gets back on. Suck it up, buttercup. (laughs) And dad wasn't the only one who made us do things we didn't want to do. My mom tried to feed us tomatoes. And I've since grown to tolerate tomatoes, but back then I thought tomatoes were the spawn of Satan. And so so a, a fairly typical dinner at our family would look something like this. Mom would put some tomatoes in our supper and we had to eat them. So I decided to bite the bullet. I'm going to be a tough guy. I'm going to do it this time. And so I had one down. I get another one. I gag it down. And I try another one, but I just can't make it happen. I can't do it anymore. And there's still several bites of tomato on my plate. And my parents aren't backing down either. So here we are. It's high noon. We're having a showdown. And I'm convinced that this is an infringement of my constitutional rights. This is cruel and unusual punishment or something. I'm not going to put up with it anymore. So I turn on my drama queen act. I can't do it. You know, all this. And my dad, he's still the classic preacher with all those little motivational speeches for me. He'd say, winners never quit and quitters never win. I don't even care about winning. <laughs> you know. <laughs> then he'd try that call and response from the movie Remember the Titans. What do you want? We want some more. <laughs> I, I hated it. It was terrible. I was miserable. But the worst one was this. He said, son... If you have to eat a frog, don't look at it very long. <laughs> and then and then he'd say, and you have to eat a whole bunch of frogs, you might as well eat the biggest one first. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Dad. I'd rather eat a frog than this tomato right now. <laughs> it felt like I was being tortured. But guess what? I can ride a bike, and I can even tolerate a tomato now. It felt like I was being tortured, but he wasn't torturing me. He was just sending me to boot camp. I couldn't see it then, but he knew what he was doing. And I don't know what your trials are right now, but I know that each and every one of you has them, and I know that you know them. And it may feel like you're being tortured, but he's not torturing you. Maybe he's just sending you to boot camp. So maybe that's the joy of perseverance. Maybe it's the cultivation of character. Paul talks about it in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Look at it with me. Paul says this. And not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So we see Paul here. He's straining forward like the runner at the end of the race, stretching to the tape. He's pressing on. But what's his goal? Why is he persevering so hard? What's his goal? Well, if you look at the paragraph, right before that you can tell his goal is to know Christ to look like Christ his goal is maturity cultivation of character wow that's a tall order it only comes through perseverance though that's where characters form it's like Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 he who began a good work and you will carry it through to completion on the day of Christ Jesus we are completed we are perfected we are made whole we are shaped into the image of Christ as we persevere You all know the cultivation of character that comes from perseverance, too. You know the joy that it brings. You've had long marriages. You guys have raised kids. You've fought hard in the trenches of ministry for a long time. And I bet sometimes it felt like it was torture, but it was just boot camp. Because look at how your perseverance has grown you. Your perseverance has shaped you. It it, it has proven your faith. It has sharpened your resolve. You've learned firsthand that what doesn't kill you actually does make you stronger. 
So maybe that's the joy of perseverance. Maybe it's the cultivation of character. Well, yeah, perhaps. But maybe there's more also. Maybe the joy of perseverance is also the advance of the gospel. Maybe that's what it is. Because these trials that we go through, they've helped the gospel to go further, to go stronger, and to reach more people, haven't they? We know this to be true in everyday life, I think. The only way you're ever going to get anywhere is if you don't stop. It's true. Any truly meaningful accomplishment requires perseverance. The only way that you are going to run a marathon is if you endure hours and hours of pain in the months leading up to it to build a high level of endurance. I've tried to run before. Um, In fact, when I was in fifth grade and I still had all my baby fat, my mom decided that I needed some exercise. So I was supposed to go running with my dad in the mornings. And I can remember this. It was great. I was feeling loose. My blood was pumping. My head was clear. The birds are singing. The sun is shining. Louis Armstrong singing about a wonderful world in the background. And I've got the Rocky Balboa training montage going through my head. I'm a lean, mean, well-oiled, 10-year-old running machine. I was ready to go. And that lasted for about 25 feet. (laughs) Then the rush of pleasure and excitement turns to drudgery as that stitch in my side becomes a spear going through my heart and the knives of pain are stabbing my calves and my lungs are full of burning coals. You know the feeling. Runners call this hitting the wall. And the ultimate test of a runner is when they hit the wall, whether or not they will push through it. My wife, Rebecca, has run a marathon in Chicago before, and she'd tell you that it took a lot of miserable miles, a lot of slow days running down the street, a lot of side stitches and panting and hitting the wall and pushing through it before she got to the point where she could cross that finish line in Chicago. So your perseverance, your refusal to quit when you hit that wall, your persistent advance in the face of adversity has pushed the kingdom of light a little bit further into the darkness. I mean, if we quit when it got tough, we wouldn't share the gospel very often. We wouldn't make much of a dent in the devil's schemes. But perseverance in the face of adversity is a powerful weapon for the spread of the kingdom. Uh, Paul says this. He talks about the advance of the gospel in chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Look at it. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul's imprisonment is actually resulting in him being able to reach new people with the gospel. And the people this reading this letter, the people Paul's sending it to in Philippi, they would have remembered that perseverance results in the advance of the gospel. Because you remember when, when Paul first comes to Philippi with Silas, they were stripped, they were beaten with rods, they were stuck in the darkest, dampest, deepest, most rat-infested part of the prison. Their legs are spread as wide as they can go, clamped shut in the stocks, so painful that they can't sleep. So what do they do? They sing. And what ends up happening? An earthquake comes, a jailer converted... And between his family and the family of Lydia, the purple cloth dealer, they had a church. And this is the church that Paul now writes to. So yeah, perseverance, the joy of perseverance, must be the advance of the gospel. Paul's basic attitude here is, well, the more lemons life gives you, the better lemonade you can make for God. And people are watching you too. I'm watching you. People are watching how you handle the garbage that comes your way. I am watching you. So will you persevere in a way that advances the gospel of joy, the good news that we proclaim? 
There was a pastor named Joseph in Romania in the 1970s when Romania was ruled by the communists. And Pastor Joseph was eventually singled out. He was harassed. And on one occasion, the communist government actually threatened him with torture and death. And this was his response. He says this. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know that I died for my preaching. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. The joy of perseverance is the advance of the gospel. And your perseverance is why I'm here. So I want to say thank you. Because the words of truth that you speak, the calls that you make, the cards that you write, the hugs that you give, the work projects that you do, it's stuff like that that the kingdom of God is built on. So maybe that's it. Maybe the joy of perseverance is the advance of the gospel. Yeah, but maybe, just maybe, maybe there's something even more. And if you hear one thing I say today, I want you to hear this. The joy of perseverance is the hope of resurrection. The joy of perseverance is the hope of resurrection. It's no big secret that this world is falling apart. We're trapped in a cycle of futility. Everything and everyone is headed towards the grave. A couple of 50 years is lying in bed one night. And the wife says to her husband, Honey, do you remember when we were young, how you used to hold my hand when we were falling asleep? The husband sighs, kind of gropes around in the dark until his hand finds hers. <laughs> and she says again, Honey, do you remember how you used to cuddle up against me when we were young? <sighs> he grumbles, turns over till his body's up against hers. And she says, Honey, do you remember when we were young, how you used to nibble on my ear? At that point, the covers go flying and the husband huffs and puffs out of bed. And the wife is heard. She says, Honey, where are you going? He says, To get my teeth. <laughs> A time is coming when we are never going to have to look back and wish we had what we used to have. There's a time coming when we're never going to look back and wish that life was what it used to be. No, soon we're not going to need Advil or the Adkins diet, Weight Watchers or weight training. There's going to be no more cataracts or carpal tunnel. Doctors and lawyers and policemen and social workers are all going to be out of work where we're headed. That's because, and that's why, we can persevere with joy. Because through all of these decades of seeming hopelessness and seeming meaningless, we can persevere knowing that one of these days, one of these years, joy is coming in the end. Man, I sound like a Cubs fan, except for us it's actually true. (laughs) You know, we are the people of the crucifixion. Which means that we live our lives carrying a cross up a hill, facing seemingly hopeless situations. But we are also the people of the resurrection, which means that we're actually not allowed to call any situation hopeless. Because this God that we follow specializes in promising impossible things and then doing them. Now look with me at Philippians chapter 3 verses 7 through 11. It's all over this place. Paul writes this. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage 
that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Did you catch that? Everything that we experience here is nothing compared to knowing Christ and emulating His death and His resurrection. But we can't experience the joy of a resurrection until we persevere through a crucifixion. And this kind of hardship that you're going through is actually supposed to be happening to us. We're meant to carry a cross, remember? The Christian life is this life of outrageous joy in constant trouble. But we have that joy because of our great resurrection God. Paul talks about this in chapters 1 and 2 of Philippians. He he makes sure that everybody's ready for the day of Christ. He says it multiple times. Because for us, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Really, when we suffer, we do gain. Because we we are identifying with Christ's suffering. Confirming our salvation and preparing us for our resurrection. Just like Jesus, who was obedient to death. Even death on a cross. You know the text, Philippians chapter 2. What did God do? He exalted him. It's resurrection. That's our hope too. Paul says it in chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like His heavenly body, His glorious body. We persevere in the hope of resurrection because we are citizens of an eternal kingdom where no election shakes the government and where our creaky old bodies are going to be made spry and new again. And yeah, man, life down here can be rough, can it? But aren't you sure glad that God still raises the dead? And yeah, sometimes it's hard to rejoice when you're carrying your cross, when all you see is Golgotha. When it's dark outside and everyone's left you, when the Garden of Gethsemane is quiet and you're alone, when your house is empty, when you used to be able to work and do everything you wanted to, but now they're just telling you to rest, when you're just lonely and you're tired and all you want is just to feel good, you feel okay, and you don't know how it's all going to end, it's hard to find joy then. It's hard to rejoice in the Lord then. In Mark chapter 14... Verse 26, after Jesus and his disciples have eaten the Last Supper, it says, When they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, there are certain psalms called the Hallel Psalms, which the Jews sung specifically at Passover. It's Psalms 116 through 118. And so Jesus is preparing to go to the Mount of Olives, where he's going to pray so hard that he sweats drops of blood. Then he'll be arrested, he'll be tried illegally, he'll be tortured and executed, bearing the sins of the world. And as Jesus is preparing for that resurrection and that misery, the greatest pain ever experienced by anyone, he sings a hymn. And do you know what he likely sang? Do you know what Psalm 118 says? This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. On the way to Gethsemane, on the way to Golgotha, the joy of perseverance is the hope of resurrection. And so we remember that he himself said to us, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. God's on his throne and the grave is empty. Every year, Australia hosts a 543-mile endurance race from Sydney to Melbourne. 
This race is only undertaken by world-class runners who can endure the five-day ultramarathon. They are young, they are specially trained, they are backed by sponsors like Nike. But in 1982, a man named Cliff Young showed up at the starting line. And Cliff Young was 61 years old, wearing overalls and work boots. <laughs> he was a single farmer. He lived at home with his mom. But he shocked everyone by picking up a number and joining in with the other runners. People told him he was crazy. You can never finish this race. But Cliff just said, yes, I can. <laughs> See, I grew up on a farm where we couldn't afford horses or tractors. And the whole time I was growing up, whenever the storms would roll in, I'd have to go out and round up the sheep. We had 2,000 sheep on 2,000 acres, and sometimes I'd run those sheep for two or three days. It took a long time, but I'd always catch them. I believe I can run this race. The professional athletes in this race know that you have to run about 18 hours, and then you can stop and sleep for six hours, run 18 hours, sleep for six hours, and so on and so forth for the whole duration of the race. But the thing is, Cliff didn't know that. <laughs> and so when the, second mor when the morning of the second day of the race comes, everyone is in for another surprise. Not only is Cliff still in the race, but he jogged all night. He hadn't slept a wink. And when asked about his tactics to everyone's disbelief, Cliff said that he planned on running straight through the entire race without sleeping. And sure enough, he did. <laughs> and he inched closer and closer and closer to the leaders, just shuffling along, keeping on, keeping on, even at night while the other racers are sleeping. And he was actually the first competitor to cross the finish line in Melbourne. He set a new course record, trend, trimmed almost two days off of the previous record. He didn't even know about the $10,000 prize at the end of the race, and so he actually ended up giving his winnings to several of the other runners. And since then, Cliff Young has had a memorial made in his hometown in his honor. He's had a TV movie made about his life. His style of, of running, called the Young Shuffle, has now actually been proven to be, for this ultra-marathon stuff, the most in, in efficient type of running in terms of energy usage. So other people are running like him, and they're not sleeping during the race. This is a 61-year-old potato farmer who liked to run in work boots and overalls. And how did he win? How did he do it? He just didn't stop. So church, keep on keeping on. Keep going. Don't stop. You can keep going. You can keep relentlessly advancing in the face of adversity as you find your joy and the satisfaction in the sovereign lining. And you can have joy as you persevere, as you look towards the finish line, because you know that your character is being cultivated, the gospel's being advanced, and you can have the ultimate joy in knowing the hope of resurrection. That's what the joy of perseverance is, the hope of resurrection. Because he lives... I can face tomorrow because he lives. All fear is gone because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives.